How y'all doing? I'm going to talk a little bit about propaganda and surveillance. Each one of these topics could easily fill 40 minutes, but an impossible topic is that's uh, kind of my specialty, so hopefully it'll be fun. So about each of these two topics, propaganda and surveillance, I want to present two different ways of thinking about them in the context of what's going on right now with digital media. So one way is to think that it's kind of the same old problem, except perhaps the scale is different, which is to say it's faster, it's cheaper, it's brighter, it's bigger, it's tinier, right? So the scale may be different. Or maybe it's not the same old problem. Before I came to New Zealand about a year and a half ago, I was teaching at Stanford University in California. And I was teaching a propaganda class there. And those are pretty uh, media savvy young people, right? If there's such a thing as digital natives, it's probably those kids. But this propaganda class, it stretched back in time. I wanted to give them some historical context. And so one of the things that I asked them to do was to watch a classic propaganda film, Triumph of the Will, which is by Lenny Riefenstahl. It was a classic piece of Nazi propaganda. Uh, it's, it's quite an interesting film. On one hand, it's sort of bouncing swastikas in black and white for a couple of hours, right? I mean, there's things about it that seem absurd, especially to people watching it now, but it's also a classic work of cinema, one of the apex films of its period uh, for technical filmmaking, and it's still considered aesthetically beautiful in some ways. And I thought, okay, we're going to watch this whole thing. We're not going to do the regular university lecturer in 20 whatever we are now and just do a YouTube clip. We're going to watch the whole film, two hours of black and white, swastikas, beautiful Aryan children. And they're not going to watch it at home. We're going to come together, and we're going to watch it in front of a screen. We're going to watch it the way that it was watched in Germany almost a century ago. So I have this, this screening, and all the students come in, and there's popcorn, and we're watching this sort of epic Nazi film. And at the end, they clapped. And my heart sank. <laughs> and I had, I just didn't know what to do, so I just let them all go. And I went home and just like sat all weekend with my head in my hands, asking myself, like, what have I done? There's been no time probably in my life when my German Jewish heritage, which is my father's side, felt more acute in my physical body. And uh, so I sat all weekend thinking, like, how do I even handle this? Like, what went wrong? I thought about canceling class. I just, I felt like if I brought it up, they would feel like I was accusing them of being Nazis. Like, I just, I couldn't figure out what to do. So I turned up to class, and I went with leading questions. So I said, oh, so we all got together, and we watched this movie. Part of what's interesting about that is that we were physically together in a room, as you and I are now. 
What was your experience like that was different from if you had, for example, watched it at home and people said, oh, you know, we could hear each other shuffling around. Oh, well, what else did you hear? Did you hear anything else interesting? So I let them come with it, and someone in the back said, yeah, but the way everyone applauded, that was super weird. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, yeah, I was a little concerned about that and kind of thinking about it all weekends. What happened... And this, this young woman, she couldn't have been older than 18 or 19, very sort of meekly put up her hand. And she said, oh, this is all my fault. And I was like, what do you mean this is your fault? And she said, well, see, my parents own a movie theater. And since I was like 12 or 13, my job is that I sneak in like 10 minutes before the movie ends, and then when it ends, I start clapping. <laughs> and then everybody claps, and they do this as my job because my parents think that they'll walk out of the movie theater having, feeling like they watched a better movie and they'll be more likely to come back. So I think I just started this whole thing because it's my habit to do so. I feel like uh, out of many years of teaching, this is one of the greatest sort of teachable moments, so to speak. You know, all these people who think of themselves as so media savvy. And there we are, having one of these moments of groupthink. It's the same as it would have been like almost a hundred years ago. So let's, let's talk about what propaganda is for a moment. The word comes from the idea of like propagation of the species, like spreading of animals and plants throughout the land. And it was then taken up by analogy for the propagation of the faith. The Catholic Church was the first to use the term to refer to the spreading of information rather than the spreading of life. It doesn't really become a dirty word in English until around the time of the World Wars. It just kind of refers to advertising and the spreading of ideas through the early 20th century. And in fact, it still means that in lots of other languages. So like if you speak Portuguese, propaganda just means like public relations. Propaganda is also associated with broadcast media specifically, right? Because it emerges as a modern concept around the time of the Nazis when there's radios and films and things like that in the broadcast era. Broadcast, by the way, also, originally the word is for spreading of seed by hand. So, like, you know, there's some plants that you would dig and you would plant each one individually. Broadcast is when you take a handful of seeds and you throw them and wherever they land, they will grow. So, these kind of analogies with something being alive, they, they live on in different ways that we talk about these things. And that's true not only for this older stuff, but for ways that we talk about it now. So the word meme was invented as a combination of mimesis, which basically means like copying, and gene, like we pass our genes on to somebody. It's something that is transmitted and multiplies and changes and evolves. The original idea didn't necessarily even have to be digital. So it could be something like an earworm, right? Like a melody that you learn and then other people pick it up and then it becomes slightly different songs and it becomes part of common knowledge. Um, it's come to refer to digital 
objects mostly now, but the idea is the same in that it's something that is replicated and travels and changes or evolves as it moves through different contexts. Now, there's this question of media being alive, and then there's this very different question that people are talking about now, which is artificial intelligence, right? What happens when a computer, quote unquote, wakes up if such a thing happens? Or uh, with the things that we're calling artificial intelligence now, which I would not really describe as a life form, uh, how would we understand them as being different from these other media in the past? When we look at digital propaganda now, if we consider ways that it is similar to what had come before, but perhaps the scale is different, which is this, this sort of first lens that I was proposing, well, what does that look like? If you look, for example, at the ways that China uses social media, we'll talk first domestically within China, you might expect that there would be lots and lots of messages on particular issues to try and convince someone to take on a new opinion, right? So classically, this would be one of the ideas of propaganda is that, well, they can just, they can tell you what to think, right? Uh, th this is a kind of old school uh, media effects uh, notion about what propaganda can do that I would say has been largely disproven. People are not quite that malleable. So if they're not doing that, well, what are they doing? If you look at the amazingly huge number of messages on social media that appear to be generated by the Chinese government, they tend to do one of a couple of things. One, they just derail conversations. So they look for conversations that uh, are conversations that they don't want to happen, and they just have people jumping in saying a bunch of stuff that's off topic. There's not really that much of a consistent pattern of topics that they would attack and tear down or prevent people from talking about. The most consistent thing, rather, is anytime people are planning action. So if people are coordinating, if people are planning to get together in a physical space, if people are organizing in some way, that's where people come in and start just derailing conversations, saying stuff that's off topic. So that seems somewhat different from the, the media of persuasion of, of uh, earlier times. And it's not something that just happens domestically, of course. I mean, this is also happening across international lines. So recently, we've seen a lot of activity around Hong Kong. There's also obviously a lot of things that have happened with Russia regarding US elections and Brexit. And the patterns are slightly different depending on what actors, so to speak, we're looking at. So they'll have many, many accounts across multiple different platforms. But in some cases, those accounts are quite old, and it's clearly something that they've been cultivating for long periods of time, getting ready. And in some cases, it seems much more haphazard. Right? There's not one way that it's happening. It's happening a lot of different ways. Propaganda isn't something that always comes from a government. 
in fact, distinguishing something like propaganda from something like advertising is very hard in practice. So the ecosystem within which this is happening online, digital platforms, social media, various other things, are guided by free market forces, right? The ways that these messages are moving, especially paid advertisements, which is a significant chunk of this stuff, is guided by corporate interests, free market structures, and it's not just advertisements themselves, but it, it is also media within which advertisements are placed. And this is an important distinction and an important point. So let me describe how the advertising industry financially incentivizes the creation of crazy stuff. Advertising, a lot of it functions on clicks, right? How many people can you get to click on this ad? Every time someone clicks on an ad, there's a tiny amount of money that is made by the people who are hosting the ad on a very basic level. So if you host a site that has lots and lots of visitors who click on your ads lots and lots of times, you can make massive amounts of money, theoretically. Lots of people try to game this system in various different ways. One thing that they will do is they will basically have the clicks be generated algorithmically. So there's not even a human doing the clicking. There's an algorithm doing the clicking. Or they'll use click farms. So they'll hire people in the developing world who get paid uh, comparatively tiny wages to sit there and click on ads. And the economics work out such that if you have some mix of an algorithm doing some clicking and you've hired some people in the developing world to do a bunch of clicking, you can make more money coming in through these fake clicks. So there's, a, there's this kind of like dirty s system that you can see starting to take shape. So why would that lead to people generating really crazy content? Well, if you look at a lot of the sites that have quite radical stuff, like conspiracy theory stuff, they'll have it at both ends of the proverbial spectrum, way out on what we would think of as the left and way out on what we would think of as the right and conspiracy theories that disagree with each other, stuff that doesn't add up to any kind of ideological position. Because they're not actually trying to communicate anything to anybody. They're just interested in getting clicks. Now, again, in some sense, this is an old problem, right? Like, we've had trashy television trying to draw in people's eyes to make advertising money for a long time. So it's like, okay, this sounds quite familiar. But what happens when you combine these things is that you find that these sites putting out this wild, contradictory content, they need actual humans like you and me to come and click but they only need us to do it a little tiny bit. Why? <laughs> because the advertising companies will be able to detect that most of their clicks are fake if they don't have a few real people in there to like throw the data off and make it appear as if all of the clicks are real. Which means that when people are looking at this content and in some sense, having their time taken or their, 
beliefs confused or their emotions toyed with by these wild conspiracy theories and other uh, kinds of content, they're, they're having that happen to them just so that their action of clicking can be introduced as noise to fool some algorithm into believing that all these other fake clicks are real. That's a pretty wild system that just starts to, to create a bunch of noise. And this idea that propaganda is very noisy, that it's not necessarily about a perfectly targeted message trying to change your mind on something, I really want to emphasize this. So you can see that in both of the last two examples that I brought up, right? You can see that with the example of Chinese government social media comments that are really sort of introducing noise and trying to derail conversations. And you can see it in this case where the messages aren't even being generated with any particular persuasive goals, right? They're just in this, this weird soup of uh, running a scam to try and sell fake clicks. But in practice, what that does is it just introduces a bunch of nonsense into whatever it is that we're looking at every day online. So it's noisy, so, so noisy. That runs counter to the narrative that I have seen played up the most in the news. So if you're paying a lot of attention to this stuff for the last year, you'd have heard about Cambridge Analytica and how they built these very, very detailed psychological profiles on a huge number of people and sent messages that were micro-targeted, right? They said, oh, okay, this person's weakness is X, Y, and Z, so we're going to send this specific message to this specific person to try and convince them on this specific issue. And there are some people attempting to do that. I'm not saying that nobody's trying to do that. And in fact, Cambridge Analytica was promising exactly that. That was the service they were selling. But... According to the people I trust the most, we're not actually good enough to do that very well. And Cambridge Analytica was selling people a, a bill of goods, right? So what you actually are seeing, I think more, is this huge amount of noise that's taking away people's time and energy. It's confusing them. It's something that you may have heard called gaslighting recently, right? It's the sense that you can't even tell the difference between what's right and wrong and maybe you even give up on trying to figure it out because it's just so exhausting. You kind of want to go to K-Road and have a beer with your friends instead. And I could relate to that. I really could. I'm going to switch to talk about surveillance and these things will relate. I promise they're going to come back together at the end. Uh, so again with surveillance, let's start with a kind of older notion of what it is and how it works. And then we'll move forward and we'll say, okay, maybe it's the same problem, but it's happening faster or cheaper or something like that. And maybe it's something that's actually totally different. So we're going to do the, the same kind of intellectual steps through this different phenomenon. When we think about surveillance from an earlier period, when it was, you know, people actually listening to phone calls or someone actually watching or a human being paying attention to another human being, that creates a, a particular kind of structure. And it, in a sense, the most important part of that may be psychological. So if you look at 
probably the most famous theorist of, of this stuff from this earliest period would be Foucault. So he talks about the panopticon. So the panopticon is this prison, has a tower in the middle, and there are all these cells around the edge, and the cells all face in towards the tower, and they all have a clear door. And the tower has curtains, uh, and there's a guard in the tower who can look out and see into any cell. So any prisoner can be seen at any time. And the idea is that this enforces a kind of discipline on people. That because they know they could be seen, they're just going to behave. So you don't actually need that many guards out there cracking heads or doing whatever it is that you think guards would do in another situation. That The prison is actually designed so that people will discipline themselves because they're being seen. And this is the trick. It's not actually because they're being seen. It's the possibility that they're being seen. Because the curtains in the tower are important. The guard can see into your cell, but you don't know if the guard is there or not. So it's the possibility of being seen. They would discipline people into acting a certain way. If, again, we try to translate that into what's going on with digital media, there is a way to understand our situation as a kind of update on that. For example, when I hop online and I go and use a search bar, Maybe I think twice about what I type in. Because I know whatever I type in that search bar is going to live in a database forever. So there's a possibility that it's kind of the same situation. But there's another way of thinking about it where there has been a more fundamental shift. We can just kind of record all the things and store them now. You know, 50 years ago, we weren't tapping everybody's phones and recording everything because there just wasn't enough audio tape and video, to, right? I mean, the, the media is different. We have hard drive space to keep uh, pictures of you every time you arrive at work for your whole life. So part of it is storage. And then part of it is the ability to analyze this huge body of information without humans necessarily looking at it. So not only do we have the capacity to store all of this information, which we didn't used to have, we have the ability to analyze it without humans having to look at it. And this starts, for me, to sound a little bit like the story that we were telling about propaganda, where humans are almost removed from important parts of the equation. We have computers taking on roles that used to be human roles, generating propagandistic messages, watching, listening to surveillance footage uh, and things like that that are being recorded on a massive scale. Now, as we come to think about this massive amount of information that's being collected, again, I would say that, like propaganda, surveillance, we tend to think of it as like governments that are watching us, but I, I would again suggest that we need to think about corporate actors and economic uh, pressures at least as much as we're thinking about what governments are doing. A lot of this information that's collected about you, they don't even have an idea what they're going to do with it. But they know that they can sit on it and they'll come up with a good idea 10 years from now. <laughs> I mean, the, the, this is quite true. If you, if you look at the ways that certain corporations, Google is famous for this, 
they will come up with new products that don't have any current business model. It's not obvious that it's profitable in any way, but it's designed in such a way that it will collect huge amounts of information about you, information that they didn't previously have, and they just know that they'll be able to develop something interesting with it later on. I just wanted to end with some possible visions of ways that we might be able to make it better. So, ways to approach these problems. Legislation has to be a part of it. And that includes both regulating what governments are doing and regulating what corporations are doing. We should expect more of them too. But as individual people, what can we do? Well, you can choose who you vote for. You can choose where you spend your money. There are ways that groups of people can push on these institutions. There are a lot of initiatives right now. A lot of them travel under names like uh, digital literacy or critical media literacy, things like that, which suggests that you as individuals should train yourselves to be able to look at all of this nonsense and parse it out and make sense of it. I want to say that I think those people's hearts are in the right place, and I think we can do better on that stuff. But there's a caveat to that that we don't talk about enough. It's like we're asking people to make sense of a system that's just designed to be nonsense, right? Like, I mean, these are computers generating messages for other computers, and you're caught in the crossfire. So what I'm trying to say is that I encourage you to, um, to pay attention and to, to look carefully and to ask hard questions, but that at the same time, that's never going to be enough. And we shouldn't uh, ask each other individually as, as citizens to be the solution to the problem. We need to, we need to push for solutions that come from above as well. Thank you.